Here we go. Hey there, folks. This is your host, Cameron Ivey of Privacy Please, and thank you so much for tuning in each and every week. If this is your first time, welcome to the show. Tell your friends about it if you like it. If you don't, let's just pretend you didn't listen to it. Thanks again for coming in, and we hope you enjoy the show. Over there, what you doing over there, Gabe? What you doing? Where you going? Attempting to stay above water. <laughs> Attempting to stay above water, literally and physically, or literally and figuratively. Yeah, figurative, no, totally. figuratively, yeah, figurative, figurative. <laughs> <laughs> Trying to do t- t- today, Junior. That's it. We are we are reporting to you live from the from this. From the parts of, of the United States that find itself in the midst of a hurricane at the moment. The yeah. hurricane is actively passing through as we're recording this. That's a thing. That's a real it thing. It is. Yeah. Um, but I, I'm I'm good. It mostly just a lot of rain right now. Winds are okay. It was I wasn't too worried about it because I was following this guy, this local guy, um, that talked about how it was a hundred miles off the coast and we're not gonna get any of the sustained winds. So <laughs> Just mo- mostly just the the rain that we were gonna have to deal with, and my house is pretty high up, so I ain't, I ain't worry about it. Everything all good. Hopefully, everybody else in the area is safe and good. <clears throat> Hopefully, everyone is staying dry. It's high yeah. tide, and there's no wall between the water and the island that I am on. But it but it doesn't look like it's gonna become any any worse. It doesn't look like it's gonna be any, yeah. any worse. But those that's what you get when you live in an island now. It's. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for surrounded sure. by water on all sides. Got to be careful. It gets um, interesting when the water rises. Yeah, well, we uh, Gabe, we got a we got a special guest today. Um, yes, he's in the waiting room. Rising let's, tides. Yeah, let's let ben, him in. Been over at uh, Transcend. He's one of the co-founders. Um, Want to bring him in right now and see if he's ready to go. Let's do it. All right. Fantastic. Let's see if he's there. Let's see if we caught him off guard. Hey, <laughs> hey, Ben. Hi, how's it going? Good, man. Nice to see you. Good to see you too. Hey, thanks for your time. Um, oh, of course, yeah, yeah. We really Kim, are appreciate you in Florida it. right now. Yeah, both of us are. Gabe's Gabe's okay. over there in St. Pete, and I'm over the bridge in Tampa. Okay, are you guys getting any weather yet? Oh, we've got weather. We got all. <laughs> we got all kinds of weather. We got all kinds of weather. I was saying okay. before too, though. I I have enough sandbags to stave off a small zombie apocalypse as well. So <laughs> okay, that's decent. Good. Decent. <laughs> so glad. were you one of the guys in Costco line that was holding everything up because you were getting toilet paper and water? Wrong. I did that two Gosh. weeks ago. I was the okay. guy that I was the guy who was just sitting at home watching everybody else run up and down the street like maniacs with my with my thirty sandbags. <laughs> <laughs> well, I can understand it because of where you're at. You you're definitely more in a flooding area. Yeah, it's um, an island. Being, it's an yeah. island. I live in a whole oh, ass yeah. island. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, no, it's a no, thanks. I'll tell you one of the other benefits of being me though is I, I never talk about it in the show if at all. But you no, know, I'm vegan also. So like going to the grocery oh, nice. store during an emergency is like whatever. Like everything <laughs> else is gone, and I'm like cool. All my normal <laughs> stuff still here. <laughs> 
<laughs> oh, that's awesome. <laughs> what, do you well, guys um, eat, what do you guys eat during a hurricane? There's a lot of bread and milk missing. Is everyone making waffles and pancakes and shit? I don't know about it. Uh, I mean, honestly, it's just, this is a normal, fl- I'm a Floridian, man, so I'm so used to this. I know you're from New York, um, or at least lived there for a long time, Gabe, but uh, where where are you about again, Ben? Are you uh, West Coast? Yeah, West Coast. I'm in I'm in Santa Barbara, but I was actually in Florida last year for Hurricane Ian. Um, oh, and honestly, all the locals were like, "Ah, it happens every year." And then like, and then it was just like 11 feet of water. It was like really bad where we were. So we fortunately we evacuated the night before. Yeah. Uh, but like, yeah, good to play it safe. I'm glad you have the sandbags and uh, yeah. And it sounds like you're out of the sort of the yeah. path. So that's we're good. both doing. Right. But we're here to hear about you today, Ben. So <laughs> yes. why, why don't we kick this off like we always do? Tell us about yourself. Absolutely. Um, so I'm Ben Brook, co-founder and CEO here at Transcend. Um, I started the company uh, out of college with um, my good friend um, that I met in freshman year, Mike Farrell. Um, so we kind of met, um, you know, in our freshman dorm uh, and stayed up late one night just sort of talking about um, AI and the potential for it and just sort of like nerded out. Um, so uh, we were both um, freshmen at Harvard at the, at the time and um, and both starting to enter kind of the computer science program. Um, and we would just get together sort of throughout college and meet up and build stuff together sort of outside of class um and we were really kind of into statistics and data science uh ai machine learning and uh came up with this idea for our personal project to study our own behavioral data and so we said okay like step one to that is of course going and fetching all of our behavioral data so like Let's get our sleep data. Let's get our like activity data. Let's get our browsing data. Let's get our social media data. And let's basically go to all of the apps on our phones that are tracking this data and get a copy of our behavioral information so that we can then kick off this project. Mm-hmm. Um, we basically like ran into a brick wall when trying to a- access this data. So we went and asked these businesses. We asked you know Spotify, Facebook, Google. Uh, Twitter, so on and so forth, uh, for copies of all this behavioral data, which of course tells this really rich and deep life story of like, when did you go to bed? Like three years ago at this time, like, you know, you can like, they have this data set. And so we wanted to get our hands on it. Um, but what we quickly learned is it's basically impossible to do. And that's because there's just no, uh, legal right to it. And companies have no obligation to give, uh, consumers access to this data and so this was of course during college this was uh like uh, about 2016 well before sort of gdpr or anything like that um and so that was kind of the kernel for us to start thinking about this concept of data rights and we thought it just doesn't make sense that consumers have this incredible like data set that's just being tracked about them, this sort of dossier of their behaviors, of their preferences, of their just like personal life, every decision they make, every step Mm -hmm. they take is being documented. And they have no right to actually see that data because that data is 100% the property of the company who tracks it and not of the consumer who who it's about. Um, And so that was just like, that makes no sense to us. And so that was really what started getting us into this concept of data rights and 
more broadly privacy. And um, so kind of throughout college, we were really interested in the topic and just started nerding out more, more and more deeply. And of course, when Europe came out with this draft bill for GDPR, um, we thought like, this might be it. This might be the actual thing that we've been saying sh should exist for so long. And, um, and then we kind of quickly went into this mindset of like, how can we make sure it actually goes all the way through? Like, how do we actually make it happen? Um, because I think we had this sense um, that there was a huge sort of like noble goal of GDPR and a very flippant attitude in Silicon Valley. Mm -hmm. um, that even if these rights came out on paper, there would be a huge sort of gap to actually uh, to actually implementing those in a way that's meaningful. Yeah. And so we really decided that like we should really remove all barriers to Silicon Valley adopting these wholeheartedly. Um, and basically, like we recognize that this is going to be a massive engineering project for each company where they're going to have to go build uh, basically integrations into every single data system they've ever created and retroactively think of personal data as a special class. Like personal data is just kind of spewing into all these different systems, right? So if you think of a company like collecting personal data, it's really like taking confetti and throwing it into a ceiling fan. <laughs> and then and then having to clean up that data is like it's like it's basically the you know picking up each piece of confetti and so yeah um we decided like hey let's build the infrastructure that makes that possible and so so really we, we became the business that sweeps up the confetti for 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 these other businesses um and in doing so we are um we are i think making great progress toward our underlying mission which is to give users everywhere control over their personal data um, and so that's how we started. Um, we came out to Silicon Valley um, right after college. We basically graduated and then took a flight straight out um, and um, have been have been there since we ended up going uh, into a fully remote model. So now I'm actually down in Santa Barbara um, and the team is very much sort of distributed throughout uh, the United States and uh, and actually now globally. Um, but yeah, so it's been it's been an awesome journey. Um, and then before that, uh, I <laughs> born and raised in Toronto, Canada, um, and oh, nice. um, ended up um, applying to Harvard for film school um, because I was obsessed with filmmaking, and uh, it spent one hundred percent of my time doing that. And basically, got to Harvard, was fully intending on studying film took one computer science class and just completely changed my whole life view. <laughs> uh, so, yeah. Hey, but at least you did it. At least you did it in the beginning instead of getting your degree and then changing and not yeah, even using the degree. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's, I think it's hard to, to switch. Well, actually there's boot camps and stuff now that make, make it more, more realistic, but yeah, I think I'm, I'm glad I did it when I did. Um, and my hope is actually that like one day I'll kind of, come full circle and find a way to, to do uh get back into film um, i'm sure so you will maybe it's maybe you're someday. not you're not pushing an old age let's be honest you got plenty of time <laughs> true <laughs> <laughs> my best friend's a documentary filmmaker by trade like he went to school for that also and he does oh, nothing cool. even vaguely remote close to that for a living these days right like 
It's yeah. uh, it's one of those cool things to talk about at parties. <laughs> but he, but he's also a hell of a lot more um, successful, I think, where he is these days. So that's that's good. I have a question though. Um, I had a lot of questions about the whole Silicon Valley thing, just like getting on a plane and like going right there. But but you said that they were flippant in their their view of GDPR. Are, are you being generous? Was it flippant or were they being resistant? Because Silicon Valley runs on that data, right? Like Silicon Valley profits mightily mm-hmm. off of the lax data security, data privacy standards that the U.S. has. Right. Yeah. So I, I, I think that I think that's accurate. I also think that's sort of like a Silicon Valley 1.0, if you will. Okay. Um, I think a lot of the business models, um, at least of like newer technology companies, have adapted quite a lot to not treat personal data as like a um, an asset that is for sale. Um, so we still have, of course, like the major sort of advertising companies, which like like Meta, Google, um, and so on, um, which are one hundred percent percent still sort of profiting off of this and and treated as their gold mine but it's becoming i think for newer companies i think they're not treating it that way and i think the there was a bit of a whiplash effect over the course of like maybe three years after gdpr where Mm -hmm. you had a lot of folks who were still in that mindset of like you know, GDPR is such a joke. This is like ridiculous uh, requirements. Like, you know, they have no idea. And, and and a lot of this would manifest as like the regulators have no idea how technology works and things like that. But in, in, in reality, it was like it's more of a reaction to the fact that like, you know, they're pulling away a lot of their like core assets and making them actually jump through more hurdles in in their implementation. But ultimately, like, at its core, like the spirit of GDPR, I think is like uh, morally correct in that like people should not be for sale, and like there, you know, there there should be some degree of guardrails around like the type of stuff that you can do with people's data. And so, like even now, it's like a little bit of the wild west where like a lot of sensitive personal information can be sold and so like when we were first researching this we were coming up with like the most atrocious cases of like uh like totally legal totally fine data being like collected and sold so like Mm -hmm. you know there are instances of like um data brokers selling um lists of households which um with people that had had diabetes right like here's their home address etc and so like that of course is regulated by HIPAA, but that there it was such an obvious loophole where it was just like uh, diabetes interested households, um, mm-hmm. and then you'd have another list which is um, police officer home addresses, and uh, you know tons of concerns around like the safety of police officers in that instance, or you know people who are undercover getting their cover blown, and right. there's like just all of these uh, really sort of absurd things that can happen in terms of safety. Um, when you have just like a totally deregulated space around um, privacy. And so I think Silicon Valley, of course, has uh, this sort of historical, I think, attitude about this. But I think over the years 
have come around and it feels like have come a long way um, in terms of just understanding this to be like a core tenet. Uh, like much like security is just like, yeah, we just have to have security in our systems. That's just a part of our engineering yeah. process. Um, I think privacy has started to become like an accepted truth and it's an yeah. accepted step in their process. Yeah. Do you, do you think to that question too, Gabe's question, do you think that those companies like let's use meta for example, or Facebook, as we all know, sure. What they did, all that kind of stuff. Maybe they're trying to write the ship, but do you think that those companies like that that have taken advantage of personal data and, and make money off of it? Do you think that they're trying to look at the advantage of actually protecting those those that actual data for people, but also benefiting from it as well? Or do you think that they're trying to shift and, and actually just be better? What do you think in that direction? It sounds like it's yeah. Yeah, it's it's a really good question. I think I think there's um I think there's two things happening right now on the ground in any of these businesses. Um the first is they are trying to change their core business model to be more privacy preserving on a sort of more technical layer. And so the laws I I believe have really driven a um a sort of innovation approach toward taking this data and using it and extracting it in a way that's much more um, privacy preserving from the outset. Um, So for example, um, rather than taking, you know, literally tracking cam and building a dossier on cam specifically, we can do something instead, which is like, let's put him into an audience and like, we're going to hash his identifiers and we're not going to have it like directly identifiable to him. So they're kind of like, zooming out a little bit out of this yeah. like hyper micro targeted like sp- like sole person dossier um where the the privacy practices are actually being challenged and being pushed into something that is much more sort of privacy preserving i think i think the second thing that's happening in these businesses is of course massive diversification in their business models where their sort of core advertising uh or sort of core personal collection personal data collection like ingestion machine Mm. is like is becoming a sort of lessening component of their core business where they'll they'll have other things that they're making big bets on you know of course things like the metaverse and uh and you know vr and um you know through acquisition buying all these different companies and you know creating business lines google has no google cloud like all these different things um and so I, I think they're they're also diversifying out because I think the writing is on the wall that this is going to be increasingly regulated globally. Mm-hmm. And so we have GDPR, but we have, you know, like a dozen state laws now. We have, right. you know, like dozens and dozens and dozens of national laws around the globe. And basically, like, there's this effect of, like, chipping away at their business. And so now is a good time to start like investing in new business lines. And when you have that yeah. kind of cash balance, like you can very easily create new business lines. You use the phrase sweeping up the confetti for other businesses. And I want to know what that means. Is that if I were to ask the question, what problem does transcended solve for companies? And you said sweeping up the, the confetti was one of them or was the one. Like, translate that for me. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, so we are in the business of helping business, uh, helping other companies. So like the apps on your phone, for example, uh, basically govern all of their personal data. And so we build things like um, automation for deleting one person. So we are the actual automation workflow, the infrastructure that connects to um, this business's data systems, software vendors, and so on, and actually precision strikes your data. So like, let's say you want to delete your data from, um, you know, app X, um, transcend receives that request to delete on app X's behalf. And, um, and then goes into app X's data systems individually, finds you and wipes you from that system. Mm. So we are basically erasing it. We also are a full data governance platform. So that's like one example. And that's where we started was this like um, automation process for data subject requests, privacy requests. Mm-hmm. Um, but we've since expanded into uh, becoming a full privacy governance suite where we have things like uh, scanning and cataloging and mapping of personal data. So discovering all of the different systems in the business, discovering all the fields and the tables and the objects and the properties and all of those d- different data stores, classifying them with a machine learning classifier to help the business understand where personal data actually is in the first place. Um, we also have products around like consent. So actually governing the flow of data between systems. So you may have like a Facebook pixel on your website. Uh, you may have a whole variety of analytics tools. Um, you may have a whole variety of backend processes that are taking like your you know apps user table and uploading that Mm. into facebook lookalike audiences every morning um so there's all these different flows in the business and now users have the ability to set preferences increasingly so in different regions um and so we actually encode those preferences and say um you know gabe has opted out of this or that process and we're going to actually block the flow of his data from system a to system b um, so it, we, it's a lot of low-level infrastructure um, that we are really operating at the data data layer on, and so um, the sort of privacy like first-gen suite was like, let's build the UIs, let's build the sort of like ticketing systems for privacy. Transcend is like the sort of like neo version of this, where we are instead operating at the more fundamental data layer and like really solving the engineering project behind privacy um so that that's that's primarily where uh we operate um we have since also been pulled into the topic of ai governance so our customers Mm. are increasingly bringing us into the room for um this new sort of frontier of um hey you know we have all of this new usage of AI, our employees are using it, our uh, engineering teams are building product features, internal tools with it. And we have no freaking idea how to actually put the right guardrails in place to make sure we're not doing things like sending our confidential corporate data to a third party without a contract or, um, you know, sending um, bad advice to our cu- customers through a support chatbot that's totally automated. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we're starting to see our customers who view us as their partner for governance. We're starting to see them pull us into um, this new sort of field of AI governance. And so we are 
expanding even more to become a uh, also an AI governance platform. And so we've launched our first product called Pathfinder um, to help businesses actually govern their usage of uh, large language models. There's been a short number of years from the, let's call it the, the, the post-Zygote stage of the privacy technology space, right? Like I'm talking from like, like not quite its infancy, but like from like, ah, look, we, we just start, started, to, we, we could observe it in the number of organizations that exist explicitly to solve technology privacy problems. It's a short number of years from there to where we are today. And I've seen a ridiculous amount of progress. And a lot of the things that you're, the problems you're talking about solving, there's part of me that, that wanted to ask you, like, do you, do you think you'll ever put yourself out of business? But, but I don't want you to answer that question. Like I want to, I want to answer, I want to ask you the bigger question, which is could, could this movement of of privacy enhancing technologies and privacy engineering and privacy guardrails find could could the industry put itself out of business? Maybe it's twenty years, maybe it's twenty five years. We don't see it happen in a lot of industries, but we do see it happen where something just you know is that good or collectively creates that much fundamental change under the hood because privacy engineering could just put a lot of these 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 problems to bed. But that's a long road. But I guess my question really is: Do do you ever see a world where, you know, we make enough advances where where this where we can start focusing on other problems other than the ones we've created ourselves as technologists? And is that even a world you want to live in? <laughs> Interesting. Um, so if I, I I I think I understand I think I understand what you mean by that. Um, my my take is that there are problems that we've created as an industry. And not the privacy industry, but the tech industry. So right now, a lot of privacy is retroactively solving the problems. It's tech debt. We it's created. massive amounts of tech yeah. debt. Yeah. Exactly. So yeah, like we shouldn't have had a, a, a confetti, uh, a burst of confetti in the ceiling fan in the first place, right? Right. A hundred percent agree with that. So I think that is true, and I actually genuinely hope we solve that and can move on and transcend. Will be very happy to <laughs> fully solve that and then we can all move on right. um i think the topic of governance and the topic of increasing regulation and the topic of new requirements spinning up like week over week month over month year over year i think that's not going away mm-hmm. um and so while i agree that we need to finish the job of retrofitting you know all of the stuff that we've spun up since 1995 uh all of that sort of past 25 years of the internet kind of thing, like those systems need to be solved for. When that job is done, then we can start thinking about what are the sort of next-gen system architectures that we can like basically have some degree of like privacy by design, which is great. Even then, it doesn't there's no sort of like magical like privacy by design architecture where it's like all privacy problems are gone it's like it's a spectrum of how much do you actually need to use the personal data um and so um if you do there's there's going to be some kind of trade-off on like there's this much privacy work that we still have to do um and so even if you use like the most advanced um you know architecture today um, in like privacy by design, um, it's always a trade-off. 
Um, like you still have people's data, you're still controlling it. There's still maybe actual impacts on like the like you making automated decisions about this person, wh whether it's like identifiable or just a statistical sort of audience. There's still privacy implications, um, and so I, I I think that's I think that's my hope is that we get to that place where we sort of have finished retrofitting. It's going to be a long road. I agree. Now, I think the the topic of AI is probably my favorite example of us being in a window where we don't where privacy people don't have to retrofit and they mm -hmm. can actually think about future proof how do we future proof today such that we can get ahead of this have the right architecture in place where we don't have to then create this like hamster wheel of us chasing people down in our organization uh, running assessments over this system, uh, begging for engineering resources to retrofit this thing to have more privacy controls in it. Um, how do we get this right from the get-go? And so I like to think of this as like, hey, the year is 1999. The internet is just coming online. Uh, GDPR got passed in 1999. What would you do, right? So it's like we would completely re-architect or we would, from the get-go, architecture systems in a way that treated personal data as a special class we would limit the way that we send it to all these different systems we would create very specific safeguards around it and build from scratch all of the operations that would be required to then easily delete this person easily set a control on this person it would have resulted in totally different architectures and we're right there today with ai and we have i think maybe like a one-year window right now to get mm. that architecture right um and so uh so we, we do have these future proofing moments already. Um, and um, that is exactly where we're working in AI is like, how do we um, help companies adopt the right hygienic infrastructure mm -hmm. such that they can future proof themselves from the inevitable onslaught of AI regulation that's coming. The AI regulation story is going to be exactly the same as the privacy regulation story. Every single nation is going to pass something. Um, every single state is going to pass something if the federal government does not. And we're just going to have the exact same story play out. But this time we have that ability to future proof. It's a great answer. It's an excellent answer. I, yeah. My, my thought on that, uh, Gabe, did you have something? Sorry. No, well, you know, the thing that, the thing that, and I'm a cynic, Ben, so I apologize, but <laughs> some of that answer requires a little bit of altruism, right? Like ChatGPT released its enterprise version this week, and with its enterprise version, it already has built in a lot of these guardrails. But it's like, so so that's not really built in by design then. That's that's built in as a business model, right? Like, In order for me to, to benefit from those additional privacy features, if I also want to business benefit from the business features of the raw capabilities of chat gpt i gotta throw a couple extra bucks on the table or i gotta go build my own thing yeah yeah well i, I but i think that's a fair exchange in value yeah um, no i'm not saying it's not business. business yeah yeah yeah. Fair. um yeah i mean but but as a business you know um you will always have to pay something for the kind of more souped up governed you know like you can kind of get into the knobs and the settings of like access control and rules and all this more complex stuff that's pay just them not to consumer do it. Yeah. pay yeah. open ai to do it for you i get it i get it yeah 
But I think I, I think that's a part of the story. So I think OpenAI releasing the their uh, business edition of ChatGPT is like a huge step forward for businesses being able to adopt AI. So right now, mm-hmm. you, you know, of course, like there's uh, there's this massive like amount of employees using the consumer grade of ChatGPT, and you know not telling their boss, right? So like 70% of employees are using ChatGPT or 70% of employees who use ChatGPT have not told their boss. Um, (laughs) And so, and it's because it's just such a powerful tool, right? I bet it's way higher. I bet it's like 95%. You're you're probably right. Yeah, exactly. Honestly, if Um, you're smart enough to use it to get more creative, yeah, you should be using it, but you have to use it in a smart way. It's such a force multiplier in people's jobs that, it's like you, you have to create a way for employees to use it with the right guardrails. Mm-hmm. And so OpenAI launching the business tier, um, I think is super important because like businesses have been just blocking ChatGPT, right? And so what does that do for the business? Well, it of course gives them better guarantees around them not totally screwing up, but also they're kind of kneecapping their employees' sure. productivity um, sure. and the opportunity that's that lays ahead. So, uh, being able to use um, you know a chat interface, whether it's the business grade, whether it's um, you know some companies have built sort of like things on top of OpenAI's APIs or OpenAI's um, or other sort of LLMs, um, and I think most companies kind of land into two camps today, which is like um, we are going to uh, either a, like we're going to tell every manager to find a way to instill AI into their teams and uh, ensure that we have like across every facet of the business, some kind of component of our AI strategy. Um, and then the other one is like, we're going to ban this until we figure out how to govern it. And mm-hmm. it's this it's this sort of unfortunate false choice where um, where businesses know they have to be moving fast on this. They have to adopt this as soon as possible to stay competitive. Um, but also, like, there's so many landmines when you don't know, like, what kinds of data you're putting into it. You know, companies are um, racing to create embeddings out of all of their documents, mm-hmm. all of their corporate documents, contracts, everything you could imagine such that they can feed it into an AI system. Um, there's just very little very little governance in place. There's very little visibility into what kinds of data are going into this system. Um, and generally, when you're, you're doing stuff like that, like somebody's going to screw up and there's going to be kind of some explosion. Uh, so I think even oh, yeah. like my bet is this year, we're going to see the first major breach that had to do with that sort of process of embedding, for example. Um, I think I'm there's surprised gonna be it hasn't happened yet. Like Maybe it has, and we just haven't heard of it yet. Maybe it's you know how sometimes Honestly, they can maybe, take a little. I'll bet you. I'll bet you it has, and the com- the company doesn't have the monitoring in place to know that it has happened. <laughs> and probably. So, and so, yeah, that's a big part of security programs. Is like you have to like one part is like don't get breached. The second part is know when you get breached. <laughs> right. And 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 neither of those <laughs> systems are in place right now. <laughs> And then, uh, well, the thing too is like, even if it's a, nobody's going to care if it's a small company mm-hmm. or at least the, 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 the ones that want to put, 
put those giant companies on I've blast. I've taking on Silicon Valley a little bit this episode, but the truth is in Silicon Valley, there's almost a little bit of a badge of honor that goes along with that, right? That that uh, sure. look, we we became important enough to get popped, to say the least. Of now, people know our name, right? Like that's <laughs> that's a thing. Like security has always come secondary to to powering just the pure IT aspects of, uh, of Silicon Valley. I'm worried. Maybe I should say the pure innovation, right? Like innovation is always trumped business decisions in that room. And I get why I build technology for a living. I a hundred percent get why I unfortunately don't have that luxury. Like I build security software for a living. So, you know, <laughs> it's a little different. I'm not, yeah. uh, yeah, but it's fascinating. I'm, I am curious to see how it continues to plays out in the real world. I am. Yeah. Going back to, uh, Ben, going back to your, the way I was kind of interpreting it was like measuring privacy success. How, like if I'm a company, um, do you have like, do you guys have specific measures or metrics or indicators that you would recommend to companies that to track and gauge their privacy performance? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, so, so there's, there's kind of a few axes I would say to start. So the first is of course, um, their risk posture. And right. so, you can think of um, an indicator around like how many sort of out of compliance or sort of like green, yellow, red, uh, how many reds, how many yellows do they have in their program? And so there's a variety of tests that you would run um, on like, are we meeting um, SLAs on privacy requests? Do we have sensitive data in a system which we haven't run an assessment for? Um, are we... Uh, are, are we out of compliance on our website with a certain consent preference? So there's a lot of basically test running that occurs that helps yeah. companies evaluate their risk level and, and the degree to which they are out of compliance. And so just so we're clear, every company, these things are spectrums. So compliance mm -hmm. with GDPR, there's a lot of companies who say we are 100% GDPR compliant. I can probably within 30 seconds find something that would be arguably not compliant. Um, yeah. Yes, so, the very statement that they made. Yeah, 100%. <laughs> yeah, and so so like if you think of it this way, um, like there's probably at any given moment like a hundred thousand different ways in which you could have something that's out of compliance. And so the way the way that you evaluate is based on risk, based on the severity of things that might be non-compliant, um, and you run tests to understand what specifically might be wrong. And so, for example, we'll have um, a we have an automated tool called Aud Auditor. This is a system which runs a uh, suite of tests against company uh, websites and domains. Uh, performs an automated opt-out. And so it says, do not sell my personal information on that website. Mm -hmm. And then it actually monitors for you selling that personal information to Facebook or uh, Google or Pinterest or what have you. Um, and so we can, uh, we can at any moment detect if something out of policy occurs and then, and then of course, remediate it. Nice. Um, and so that, so that's the first axis is, um, it's basically a count of how many things are critically, uh, like how many uh, like high severity non-compliance issues you have, how many low severity, medium severity, et cetera. So that's an important stat. 
Um, the second is the second axis is operational, which is what are like how efficient are we being as a privacy program? And so this is super super important. Where right. a lot of businesses um, that are kind of on the let's say like 1.0 version of privacy compliance are hiring more and more and more people to do more and more manual operations. Like um, we got a deletion request. Cam, please log into Salesforce, find Gabe, yep. delete his data. Um, and then, you know, going down and down and down this organizational chain of ma- massive manual operations. Um, and so quantifying that cost, the real cost of like running that program um, and and the, the amount of burden that you're creating um, is super important. And then being able to quantify that against the automation gains that are occurring. Um, and so ultimately it's like a sort of total cost of ownership metric. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, yeah, so, so that, then it comes into that and basically time spent, um, doing things like assessments. If we're doing assessments on every product launch, how much is that slowing our product launch? How much time are engineers spending on this? If we're doing something like running a privacy request, how quickly are, res- are we responding to it? How many human hours are we putting into it? Hopefully zero, uh, and so on. Um, yeah, so broadly, the axes are operational efficiency and risk. Yeah, that was a good answer. I was going to say that's definitely a big issue for a lot of companies still where they're doing manual processes in terms of getting the data, uh, the, the, the data owners to respond and, and react um, to removing something. and by helping companies make that automated is only going to save time, money, and errors. A human exactly. error is still a problem. <laughs> you, can, you can never get to 100% on either of those things, I right. assume. And so correct me if I'm wrong there, right? But like 100% operational efficiency, let's just assume you can, right? Like for the same reason you can't have perpetual motion machines, right? Like there's, there's yeah. friction in all the things. <laughs> yeah. Um, but let's also assume that getting to 100% on, on kind of those privacy operations is also, to your point, kind of really difficult just by the nature of how many and the complexities and et cetera. Is there some kind of optimal kind of, you know, tipping point where having this much operational efficiency balance with this much risk really is the sweet spot for organizations with a certain profile? Is that even a thing that you can get to? Hmm. That's a good question. Um, so I view this in the absence of technology, these are directly trading off on each other. Mm-hmm. So in the absence of technology, you can get more operational efficiency if you do fewer privacy operations and take on more risk. You can reduce your risk by putting more people on the problem. Direct trade-off. Technology is how you sort of break through that and start moving up and to the right on that graph. If you imagine those axes mm-hmm, as X and Y, mm-hmm. um, you can actually uh, start breaking toward that top right. Um, I agree that 100% is, there's no such thing. Um, I, but I think I think you can get into the high 90s on each. And so... Um, in terms of sweet spots, I think it's always the top right corner right. Uh, for everybody. But um, the way you do that is by finding the most advanced technologies that help you 
break free from that false trade-off. No. My inner privacy geek would also love to to see if that efficiency chart looked more like a stair step or if it were, you know, kind of going up gradually, um, incrementally, as as the case may be. But uh, Mm -hmm. I think that's one of the other just general challenges. We are so nascent in some of these things. I don't know if there's enough data for, for for certainly for me to even make an uneducated kind of guess at what those things are. But it's a fascinating thought exercise, though. But I love yeah. the idea of, of technology being able to increase that efficiency, namely reduce that drag and that coefficient that is... That is humans. That, that, that is the virus that, that, that walks on two legs. Indeed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, 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 and to be, and to sort of directly answer that uh, about like different su- stages of company and size of company, I think, I think there will be different tolerance levels. Mm-hmm. So, you know, again, continuing with our imaginary chart, like you could probably draw a line on each, right, on each access, right which through. is like, here's our tolerance. Yeah. As, and, and if you're a smaller company, you're going to have a higher tolerance for, you know, risk. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, and frankly, when, when I say risk, what I really mean is likelihood of, of uh, being I, penalized. I like that you, you, you did that because I was thinking the same thing in my head, right? It's not necessarily that as a small organization, you don't care about us as much, but frequency of occurrence and likelihood have to yeah. actually come into mm-hmm. play. But outside yeah. of this conversation, Ben, I don't know how many people think about risk that way. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I think of risk as like the, the, the product of, uh, likelihood times severity. And so right. like, um, and so the, even if it's highly severe in a small company, like the truth is nobody's, they don't have the target on their back, like a sort mm-hmm. of major, uh, a major tech company might. Um, and so, and so, so yeah, the, the risk is, is ultimately just lower. And so I think with that companies can also, smaller companies can afford to, like have a lighter weight program um the operations also become lighter weight as a result um and so if you're a mom and pop bagel shop right like privacy is not the main thing on your mind um and and that's totally fair and so like um bagels better be good though i'm not gonna have crappy bagels and bad privacy (laughs) exactly (laughs) no not up in here no not up here Exactly. Um, so to uh, I want to bring it back a little bit to when you and your partner started trying to create this 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 company and this product. Can you tell us about the time that like that can you bring us through that process in your mind with him because obviously you want to create a product that is very technical but also very easy to use. Mm -hmm. That's got to be a challenge in itself for what what we're trying to, because privacy in general is just, it sounds like it could be easy, but we know that it's a very difficult thing to achieve. Um, Can you kind of take us through that process? Because I'm sure, you know, there were a lot of things going on in your mind. How can we take this and and make it an easy user interface and and, an easy um, product for our customers to use? Yeah. um, So... I'll tell I'll tell you how we actually first built the product. Um, so we are we basically we knew that we wanted to help companies give their users access to this data, 
we didn't know what that exactly meant yet. Right. And where we started was like, let's build the delete button for personal data. And so when it gets pushed, Transcend sweeps the personal data out of all the data systems in the company. Um, and we basically went, this is like right, right before GDPR came into effect. And we went into all these sort of tech companies, like found our way into through like a friend of a friend of a friend type of thing. And, right. and, and walked in and said like, hey, we're going to build, like we will build this for you for free. Or maybe it was like 30K. Like yeah. we will be your privacy engineering team. You don't have a privacy engineer. Uh, you never even heard of that title yet. Uh, but we're going to be that team. We're going to build this for you. And, you know, a lot a lot of companies obviously don't have that ability to be like, who are these guys? Uh, right. You know, like, sure, we'll take them in. But um, we worked with, um, we ultimately got our first customer uh, who was Patreon. And they, uh, we we made this pitch to them and they were like, so you're telling us, you basically give us a free product. You'll build anything we ask, and uh, and basically it'll make sure that this whole process gets automated. And we're like, yeah, that's exactly right. So we're going to automate your whole sort of like deletion flow, your whole export flow, and um, and we basically just went in and like built this from scratch for them. And so it was like somewhat purpose built for Patreon stack, but then we were of course transparent that we wanted to make this a product in the long run mm -hmm. um and so in doing so we like really figured out like how how best to run this process we learned all kinds of like all the weird sort of caveats and you know complications of like this person wants to delete their account but like uh maybe it's you know their little brother play, playing a prank on them and deleting their account so like what do we do then we have to have this sort of like backup flow and all these different caveats in the workflow um, and so it's such a great learning ground. And yeah. um, that's where we like really sort of like started building it. And then like we got midway through that. And then we started signing other customers who were like, yeah, we need this too. Like someone at Patreon told me about this. And like, so then we went to like Robinhood and we went to like all these different other companies and actually got like this great portfolio of like these like Silicon Valley, like apps and startups that were like, yeah. um, just wanted, um, wanted like, this automated solution they're very tech forward they're like there's no way in hell we're gonna instruct everybody in the business to reach into these systems by hand mm -hmm. so someone's got to do it and there's this new product transcend yada yada and so uh but in the early days it was of course very like it's very much just like a couple people like building stuff on the fly figuring out like um what works like working directly with our customers security teams and engineering teams and figuring out exactly like the types of systems they need integrated, the types of workflows, the type, all their requirements. Um, and then, and, and only then did we worry about like, okay, how does somebody do this self-serve? How do they configure this uh, right. without us basically reaching in and like building all this stuff? So we really started from like, let's get the outcome of full automation such that a Patreon user can go in and download their data and get their response back without Patreon having to run a like, basically run a big task across their organization and like have people running around um right. and so that was the outcome that we that we really worried about before anything about ux um then once we hit that um then then we started the sort of process of like okay we know what this ultimately will look like let's work backwards and find the right sort of like onboarding flow 
Um, and uh, once you know what the target is, it's a lot easier to build the sort of the nice UX. Yeah. Um, so I'm glad we we went. We started with the outcome and the value, um, and then worked backwards to the to the sort of user experience of it. That's pretty awesome. <laughs> I find that fascinating. I know, Gabe, you dive in. I mean, you've been doing that building software for a long time. You you understand a lot of that process. You just appreciate the starting from the value point. Like that's, yeah. If you're not starting from there, it is ho- oftentimes hard to get get to any meaningful place, right? Um, software has to de- deliver value. Data has to deliver value. But getting there is difficult. Getting there is difficult. Yeah. I, I know we're um, yeah yeah we're yeah we're, up we're coming time. up on the time. Let's get to that um, fun part. So let's let's do a few more like fun questions. Um, sorry if you can hear my cat in the background. <laughs> good. Let's do it. Super loud. Um, <laughs> all right. So the first question I have for you, and sometimes I ask this even before this, but what was your first ever paying job? I was an intern at Cisco. Um, Cisco Systems, so the the big network company, um, and I was uh in a sort of interesting role that was like half being uh like a software engineer half being an sdr and so Mm -hmm. i was like doing all kinds of stuff with like client facing roles but then also like doing a lot of kind of technical consulting it's really interesting it was a summer internship i've I've never heard of that mix no nor have i like ever that's interesting. Yeah, it was. I, 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 it was a lot of free reign. It was interesting. I think they were, uh, you know, just trying to get <laughs> just, a pipeline of college around. kids. Yeah, yeah. sure. <laughs> That's pretty uh, cool. Yeah. Would you be able to share a hilarious childhood memory that um, still makes you laugh today? <laughs> interesting. <laughs> hmm. It's an adult show, so band camp is okay to discuss. <laughs> <laughs> Not everybody went to band camp. Well, some of us couldn't afford band camp. <laughs> <laughs> That's a tough one. I think um, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you. I'll tell you uh, about what I did in my childhood. I don't know how hilarious it is, but uh, basically, <laughs> my... just a good memory. Just yeah, good memory. This, is, this is this is like this is a very formative sort of uh, coming of age uh, time where my friends and I basically spent every summer um, in what's called the Don Valley of Toronto. It's like a big sort of like um, it's just like a big valley that's all parks, and we would build um, dirt jumps for our like BMX bikes, and we would spend literally like. 10 12 hours a day in the in this valley uh mm-hmm. for like 10 summers straight uh building bmx dirt jumps like sort of building a community down there there would be like other people that like came and like what we would hang out with um and it turned into this like just like really great like little community down there yeah um and that's how i got into filmmaking because i started like just filming us like making you know, doing tricks on our BMX now, bikes. Now and I then, see what yeah. came for, yeah. Yeah. And so then, so it was kind of like, you know, b- doing like little like bike videos. And then, um, and then there was this really interesting moment kind of like when I was, I think in senior year of of uh, high school where they, the city wanted to bulldoze all of the, all the jumps. Oh, and, man. 
and basically we built we, we we did like a like a little documentary and submitted it to the city hall and they kept it after that's awesome. so we're like this is like what it means to the community and that's yeah. awesome yeah that's cool and then later became a disney movie which is now known <laughs> as airborne yeah, yeah. And, then, and then disney laid a tour down to put up a theme park where <laughs> <laughs> It's th- that's so true though because I feel like uh, I grew up in like you know the the 90s and it was like we we had a same like there was a part in, near where I lived where we it was like in the middle of the woods and we we created j- ramps and stuff for BMX bikes and you know skateboarders and things like that but like those memories are so fun man the things that go on and just like just being outside and being with with other kids it's just like it seems like it's rare nowadays. I know um, it's true. I feel so lucky that I got that childhood. Yeah, that's pretty cool, and that makes sense as to what kind of got you into films. So, speaking of that, what what's your favorite um, film or uh, producer or or whatever? What, what's the top of the hmm. list, or what's your favorite childhood film or whatever? Yeah, I'll give you my favorite film. Um, that's uh, Magnolia. It's uh, ah. and and I like it because of the format. It's just like. There's something about the format that's just so great of like all these parallel stories coming to life. And then like toward the end, they all merge into this like insane scenario. Um, and so if you haven't seen it, check it out. Who, who um, was in that it, again? Um, so T- Tom Cruise famously is like just like the worst person ever uh, <laughs> in, in, in it. And like he's you, you'll see um, Phil okay. Seymour Hoffman's in it. Uh, oh, Baker Hall. Yeah, it's 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 a really great film. Um and just just so sort of like fascinating. Um but yeah, it's a Paul Thomas Anderson film. Um Okay. Maybe about 20 years old or so. I don't think I've ever seen that one, but there's a lot of movies back then I haven't seen. Like I just had seen um uh what's the one with Matt Damon and like their first big film with um the one with the school teacher. Good hunting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It yeah. took me a long time to finally see that, which was, it was phenomenal, but ah, so good. I'll put Magnolia on my list. Yeah. It's interesting that the, the opening scene, the sort of, uh, is just, it's just like, so incredibly well done. It, it starts with this just like narrated rated scene of them, of all these like bizarre coincidences happening. Yeah. And then, and then that's basically the plot is like, how does something, how does such a bizarre coincidence occur? And then right. it like rewinds to the beginning, and then, uh, and oh, then that's kind of cool. Sort of like plays forward toward the co- coincidence. That's creative. Um, yeah. What uh, What's your favorite go to comfort food? Hmm. I like Let's a grilled say you're cheese. in the middle. Grilled cheese, tomato soup, grilled cheese. Ooh, okay. The, what the kind of bread? Will award two extra points for Ben <laughs> <laughs> What kind of bread? That's important. Hmm. Uh. You know, for a grilled cheese, just the classic kind of like white sliced bread type of thing. Okay. But I can also go for like a an artisanal like slice with like, you know, three three different cheeses and such. Depends on the mood. Okay. The judges will deduct the point for not stating sourdough as the correct yeah, I was going to say sourdough. sourdough is – there's something about sourdough. Sourdough. It's, I mean, and by the way, whoever made bread, I'm sure – I should know this, but whoever decided to cook bread more than once and then it became even better, like toasting it, pure genius, <laughs> pure, pure, pure genius. And adding like a fresh tomato slice on, on like a grilled cheese. My mom used to make it with a uh, cream cheese and American cheese. 
and then also a fresh tomato slice. Try it. Don't knock it. Nice. Um, Fascinating. All right. Last question. If you could have a conversation with any historical figure, dead or alive, who would that be? Hmm. It's a tough one, I know. Yeah. You can be greedy. You I can think. say the guy with the, with the with, that knows the tonight's lotto numbers. Like you could. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good one. Yeah, I think uh, I think I would probably go for like Isaac Newton. All I right. think that would be an interesting I one. Swear to. I think we've gotten that answer one other time on this show, which have is we? just a weird, which is also, I feel like we have, which is also weird too. Like that someone else, it feels like someone else has said Isaac Newton once before too. It's interesting. It's possible. Yeah. We've, we've got almost 200 episodes, so. It's true. It's true. I feel like he was uh, well, just so creative, creatively smart and just figured yeah. things out that like, yeah. it's just like, so Powers of observation. incredible. Yeah. yeah. Just pick his brain. Yeah. That would be fun. There's too, yeah. there's so, so many crazy cool people in the past. Like I watched that Oppenheimer movie and um, how they portrayed Einstein. Being able to talk to him would be pretty interesting. Just seems totally. like a character. Uh, but Ben, <laughs> thank you, man. Uh, I want to be respectful of your time. Thank you so much for for joining. This has been great, um, and we really appreciate it. So, Ben, we'll thanks for coming awesome. on the show. We'll hope yeah, to guys. see you again soon. Keep. Keep up the good work of trying to put yourself out of work. I think it's a noble line of work to be in. I do. I appreciate it. I appreciate it. So. All right. Thanks again, guys. Stay safe in that hurricane. Nah, we'll Thank do you. It. You too. We'll do it. Cheers. All right. Cheers. Hey, you guys made it all the way to the end. Thanks for listening. Again, if this is your first time, we really appreciate the support and everyone that's always been around since the beginning. We love you guys. Keep supporting Privacy, please. And we'll always have new content each and every week. Cameron Ivy, over and out.